Welcome to Walk in Truth. These are the Bible teachings of Pastor Michael Lance, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people and how to apply that truth to today's issues, trends, and culture. You can learn more about the program and our church when you visit walkintruth.com or you can download our free Living Truth app. Now here's part two of Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 41 called Comfort for the Gentiles. The next time you are burdened beyond your strength and you say to yourself, what am I doing wrong? What? Have you ever done this? What did I do to deserve this one, Lord? Just stand on the promise. Here's the promise. In this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. What? Yeah. Remember, it's not only the positive ones that are promises. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So whenever you face trouble, you are walking in the promises of God. (laughs) Whoa, I don't know. I got to think about that one. Okay, think about it. Verse 3. He pursues them, passing on in safety. Now we continue to look at this world leader that God has raised up. By a way he had not been traversing with his feet... The idea of this language is that Cyrus was so quick to dominate. It's like it didn't affect him. He pursued. He seemed to be always safe. And he seemed to not even be touching the ground as he did what he did. I want to give you an insight into why some of this happened. Go to 2 Kings. So you're going to go towards the book of Genesis now. 2 Kings. Pass up the Psalms, the Proverbs. And go to chapter 24. This is... The Babylonian captivity backdrop. This is what happened. This is the wicked king that was ruling. This is why God did what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. Check it out. 2 Kings 24. In his days, 2 Kings 24, 1, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. Jehoiakim became his servant for three years, and he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him, that is Jehoiakim, bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against who? Judah to destroy it. That's the southern kingdom of Israel. According to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Surely at the command of who? The Lord. It came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh. And I want you to see what the sins of Manasseh were, which was, he's the son of Hezekiah, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed, 24-4. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. So what was Manasseh up to? Manasseh, go back to Isaiah 41, got involved in pagan child sacrifice. One of the gods that they had at that time was Molech. And they, the people, because a lot of the pagan worship that went on was filled with immorality, but it oftentimes was trying to appease gods that uh, they believed controlled the crops and the weather. And so what they would do is they would sacrifice their firstborn child to this god. They 
The scholars say they would heat up this molten god, heat up the arms and put the baby on it and fry their child. And because of the innocent blood that was shed in the land, God got so fed up with it that he brought foreign nations against his own king of Judah, the good place, the southern place that was most true to him. He brought Ammonites and the Arameans and Nebuchadnezzar, all, all at God's bidding, Because the prophets came and they warned and they warned and they warned. They said, get rid of the idols. Stop it. We got to turn around. Stop what you're doing. Stop, stop. And he wouldn't stop. And God said, okay, you don't want to stop. I'm going to send all these armies to destroy you. I'm not going to forgive your sin. And folks, I took a big gulp in studying this. Because right now I look at America And I look at the number of babies that have been aborted in our nation. I don't care what the laws say. And I'll tell you what, I am fearful for our country. I was listening to a pastor last night make a case that if God is indeed the God of history and he does not change, then we must see world events through the eyes of a biblical worldview. People don't like to talk about this because it ruffles feathers, because people say... No, 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 no. You're not going to say that some foreign nation came here and it was the will of God. Well, look, I'm telling you that we better have a biblical worldview. I'm not going to decide what God did or didn't do in a certain circumstance, but I'm going to tell you that there is great precedent in your Bible. That means there's all kinds of stories in your Bible where God did exactly that. And he did it to the people of Israel that he he called the apple of his eye. His own chosen people. So do we think that America could not suffer the same fate? And so God is making a case that he is the God of history. And uh, he has stirred up Cyrus and Cyrus is going all around and doing what he's doing. But Bible students, keep in mind, when was this written? Well, if you look at the dates of Isaiah's life and writings, let me just share a couple facts with you, and this is out of the Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics by Norman Geisler. He says, according to Isaiah 44, and you might want to turn there, I'll show you the prophecy of uh, Cyrus, 44, um, I'll point out the verse in a moment. Isaiah was inspired by God to write this prophecy. Isaiah lived between 740 and 690 BC. Cyrus made his proclamation for Israel to return from exile in 536 BC. Here's what Geisler says, I'm quoting. There would have been no human way for him to know what Cyrus would be named or do. The attempt of critics to divide Isaiah and postdate the prophecy is without foundation and as a backhanded compliment to the detail and accuracy of the prediction, close quote. So 150 years before the Cyrus, uh, leader of Persia, comes on the scene, Isaiah 44, 28 says these words. Look at it with me. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, Isaiah 44, 28, and he will perform all my desire and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. He'll, he'll be the one that calls the people back from the captivity. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Look at 
Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed for his purposes, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. And you can read more about that, but the point of the passage is this, and now you know why the liberal commentators debate the authorship of Isaiah and try to make a case for a second Isaiah living in the time of the Babylonian exile. Why? Because then if Isaiah, and the only Isaiah wrote this, and that's what we know to be true, then he's telling history in advance and naming rulers of regions by name before they existed. That's the power of your Bible. That's predictive prophecy. And by the way, that is in keeping with this whole section because in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, God is challenging the idols to predict the future. If you're really a God, then tell me what will happen before it happens. And then we'll know. Then we'll set up a chair for you at the table if you're really a deity. This is your Bible. And that's why the liberal scholars have to scramble and say, no, there must be a Deutero-Isaiah hypothesis. There's got to be a second Isaiah living later because nobody can know this stuff unless it came from, gulp, God. And God will say, who has performed 41.4 and accomplished it? If you're wondering if the imagination is stirring at these thoughts, let me answer the question for you. Who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, here it is, am the first and with the last, I am he. I am the first. I was there in the beginning. I am the Aleph in Hebrew, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I am the Tav. The Greek is I am the Alpha and the Omega. But here God is saying in Genesis 1, when you read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then a little later you read, and God made man in his image, male and female. He created them. And then you read about people springing from those people. And then you hear about sons of Adam and Eve. And then you hear about people groups in the Tower of Babel. Do you know who the mover and shaker of the world is? You know who the beginning of the, the beginnings is? I am. I am the beginning. I am the middle, I am the end. And so you read the book of Revelation and you come across some marvelous stuff. And in the very first chapter of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm the first and I'm the last. Write down for your notes, Revelation 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And write, write down Revelation 22, 12 through 16. And think of what the book of Revelation is about. Here's a big picture view. The book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. And in chapter 5, The one seated on the throne is holding what? A scroll. And John starts to cry because he says, there's nobody found worthy in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, to take the scroll and loose its seals. But then he's told, stop crying because the the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's overcome. And he takes the scroll. And scholars say the scroll is what? The title deed of the earth. And then you start to say, wait a minute. This first and last stuff is not only about God being outside of time, and that's certainly true. He's not touched by time. He, he made time. He's eternal. We know that. And that's certainly a uh, very good um, uh, conclusion from this description of God. But it's more than that. 
You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Walk in Truth has more content for you to listen to with our mini-sodes A Step Closer, where Pastor Michael Lance and others on the Walk in Truth team discuss topics and questions about life from a Christian perspective. You'll also get a chance to get to know the team. Since this is Holy Week, the topic is the resurrection. So if something is that, that's written down reflects poorly on what is being described or what is being reported on, if that reflects poorly... That lends to its credibility. Yes. Because normally we say, well, the writers are biased. Regardless, we're not just talking about the New Testament. Any writer's biased, they want to get their point of view across. But what shows their objectivity or attempt to be objective is when they include information or facts that reflect poorly on themselves or the narrative they're trying to push. Yes. And, and so let's take a step further towards that. So when the women go to the apostles who are supposed to be the brave followers of Christ, right. they say... The, the women have lost their minds, to paraphrase. They do. They're just crazy tales. They, they don't believe it, which is another embarrassment yeah. because, of course, the, the documents go on to say that Christ is risen and it becomes crystal clear. But the, the way that it, this is written down, and we believe it corresponds exactly to what happened, is that they don't believe. They have no faith. To listen to the Walk in Truth minisodes a step closer, follow Walk in Truth on your favorite podcast app like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and more. Again, follow Walk in Truth on your favorite podcast app. We'd love to see who's listening, so please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just do a search for Walk in Truth Show. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. Write down Revelation 22, 12 through 16, and think of what the book of Revelation is about. Here's a big picture view. The book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ, and in chapter 5, the one seated on the throne is holding what? A scroll. And John starts to cry because he says, there's nobody found worthy in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, to take the scroll and loose its seals, but then he's told, stop crying because the, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's overcome. And he takes the scroll. And scholars say the scroll is what? The title deed of the earth. And then you start to say, wait a minute. This first and last stuff is not only about God being outside of time, and that's certainly true. He's not touched by time. He, he made time. He's eternal. We know that. And that's certainly a uh, very good um, uh, conclusion from this description of God. But it's more than that. It is God saying, I am the origin of the nations. I am the beginner of all peoples. I am the first and I am the last. And in Revelation, when he makes that claim, he's talking about God taking back the title deed of the earth so that all nations and kingdoms will do what? Worship him as the only true and living God. And the people that don't get it in the book of Revelation are the people who will not repent. And in the list of things that they won't repent, one of the things they won't repent from is their idolatry. They continue to follow false gods despite how God is showing his power. Psalm 102, 27 says, Thou art the same, thy years will not come to an end. God has a purpose. Look at verse five. This tells me, by the way, that my life is not just something that just was uh, some chance happening. My life has meaning. 
I am part of this drama. I have a part to play. I have gifts to use. I have a life to live to bring glory to my maker. My life means something. It has great significance, not only for here, but it means so much to God that he wants me to be with him forever. See, this changes everything about our view of the world, and that's why there's so many empty people walking around trying to get all the gusto that they can get, walking around nervously, you know, freaking out because they don't know if anybody's steering this ship. And if nobody's steering, it's a pretty frightening proposition. After all, we are on a ball in space. I hope somebody's steering. And I certainly would like to know who he is. The coastlands have seen, they've seen it, they saw it, and they're afraid. The ends of the earth, verse 5, 41, 5, they have drawn near and have come. But here's the response, and it's, it's an odd one. Though they see this reality, each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. It's kind of like in difficult circumstances when all someone like Cyrus is going around dominating people. What do people say to each other? Hey, people are pretty good about neighborly help. Did you see all the people scramble in New Orleans to help each other and rebuild houses? There's, there's secular organizations that are good at helping people. And people can be very neighborly who are not born-again Christians. I hope you've noticed that. I notice that all the time. There's a lot of nice people. Sometimes I'm walking out of a place and I, and I think, there's nobody left who has chivalry. And then someone will hold open the door for me. And if they hold open the door for me, I don't automatically say, are you born again? You must be. Because the only people that open the door for other people are born again Christians. No. People can be nice. They can say to one another, look at verse six, brother, be strong. But look what they do. So the craftsman encourages the smelter. Seven. He who smooths metal with a hammer encourages him who beats the anvil. Yeah, do it. You can do it. You're shaping it great. And he says to the soldering or the welding, it's good. This kind of a parody of the creation. When God made the world, he said, it's good. It's good. It's good. And when the friend is telling him, hey, be strong, brother. And hey, let's go. Let's go make sure our idol's good. Maybe we should put a new coat of paint on him. We should put some fresh metal on him. You know, let's run to our false gods. They encourage one another with this too. And they say, it's good. And he fastens it with nails that it should not totter. Okay, our God's in place. Okay, be of good cheer, brother. It's gonna be all right. We'll rebuild. And plus, we got our God and he's got a fresh coat of silver and paint on him. His chains have been secured. We're good. And God says, that what you do? And the whole previous chapter Chapter 40, verses 12 through 26, is God basically mocking idolatry and saying, don't you see who made all the stars? Don't you see who made everything? Hello? Don't you see who made the idol? You make the idol. You are a God manufacturer. That's what people say today, by the way, of Christians. We, we made up this God concept to make ourselves feel a little bit better about our lives. Well, I have to tell you something. The God of the Bible is not how I would make a God. If I were Peter or John and I made up a story about the Gospels and about Jesus Christ, I would never allow anybody to write a chapter about me denying him three times. Uh uh-uh. uh. The Bible shows the foibles and the humanity, and it tells you look, you put this on the big screen, you better you're going to put a pretty serious rating on this book because you read through the Bible, there's some ugly stuff. 
and it's in the patriarch's family. He starts saying, this is the group that God picked? Yeah, that's why you're sitting here tonight. (laughs) That's why I'm standing up here. But we got to shore up our God. One writer says, when we turn from God, we're left shoring up our idols rather than resting in the arms of Almighty God. And we do it today. We just have different forms of it. We go back and we make sure everything's secure, our little idols in place so we can encourage ourselves and then check on it. And God says, no. The purpose of all of this is to drive you to me. And so he'll now contrast his people with the rejecting people who go to the idols. Verse eight. But you, by contrast, and he's now gonna speak to Israel, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, Descendant of Abraham. What's Abraham called in verse 8? Abraham was my friend. Literally, you could translate this Abraham who loved me, and I loved him. Abraham's my friend. And we sing, uh, we haven't sung it lately, but we used to sing a song quite often I am a friend of God. It's a cool tune. He knows my name, right? I'm a friend of God. What? Yeah. And I'll, I'll encourage you to look at James 2.23. It says, And he, Abraham, was called the friend of God. And Second Chronicles 20, verse 7 says, Abraham, thy friend forever. See, God made a covenant with Abraham. And think of the backdrop. Now, God has been addressing people who turn to idols And Abraham came from a family of, guess what? Of idol worshipers. Turn to the book of Joshua. Let me just show it to you. We'll move quickly through the last parts of this. We're going to end at verse 20. But go to Joshua 24. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Just before Judges. Go to Joshua 24. God made a covenant with Abraham. By the way, there's a... um, a uh, story outside biblical sources that said when Abraham was growing up in the home of Terah, his dad, he refused to worship idols. Take it for what you will, but it is a story that circulated around. You've been listening to Comfort for the Gentiles, part two on Walk in Truth. That's Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 41. Hey, if you missed any part of today's program, you could listen to Walk in Truth on our Free Living Truth app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, we'd love to connect with you. You can email or send Pastor Michael and the team here a letter. We love mail. You can get all the contact information at walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. But our email address is contact at walkintruth.com. That's contact at walkintruth.com. And here's our mailing address. Are you ready? You can write Pastor Michael at P.O. Box 2063, Corona, California, 92878. That's P.O. Box 2063, Corona, California, 92878. Now here's Pastor Michael with a final word. Well, maybe you're asking the question, my unbelieving friends don't believe anybody's steering their lives or even my life. You know, maybe you would say they see hard things happen to me and that may make them question, well, where is God? But when you go through some tough stuff and you lean into your faith, that alone 
in and of itself can be a testimony. Here's the point. I think that you can show unbelievers the hand of God as you walk with the Lord. Now, the Lord's big enough to deal with them. And as you pray for them, I would pray that you know the Lord would reveal himself to them. But he may be using you to do just that. And as he uses your life and steers you to his perfect will and grounds you in the hope of your faith, that will make a difference in people around you. So don't lose heart because your testimony is a light. There's no doubt about it. You're planting seeds that you may not even realize as you just walk with the Lord. This is Pastor Michael Lance. You're listening to Walk in Truth, and we're walking through the book of Isaiah. We're excited about the book. It's so deep and rich, and we're in some wonderful sections of prophecy and comfort, and there's more to come. We're going to do a part three on this topic tomorrow, and I would encourage you to be praying for us. Invite a friend to listen in. Thank you so much to all of you who support us and uh, those of you who give financially. We're so grateful. Partner with us today at walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. Just give a little bit each month. It helps us reach more people. That's our deep desire to equip the saints, to reach out to the lost. And we'll be seeing you right here tomorrow, Lord willing, for more in Isaiah. God bless you. If you've been listening for some time now and you're blessed by this ministry, If you've learned something from Pastor Michael's teachings, or if you've been encouraged, please help others like you. Visit walkintruth.com to donate. That's walkintruth.com. And join us tomorrow for part three of Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 41 called Comfort for the Gentiles. I'm Mike Massaro, and thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, where it's our goal to equip you to reach out with God's truth to all people.